William Cooper's great hymn has this line, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. I think William Cooper understood that there are times when when we scratch our heads. We wonder, what in the world is God doing? He's moving in a mysterious way. We look and we see and we behold, and yet we wonder, what is God doing? The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We may wonder at what God is doing, and yet we are fully confident that God is working his perfect will. I wonder if Jeremiah wasn't scratching his head a little bit. In the 32nd chapter here, as we approach it, as we see him imprisoned, as we see him told to purchase land, as we see the way in which things were going for the children of Judah. And yet, he was scratching his head also as he prayed to the Lord, knowing that nothing was too hard for the Lord. And yet he tries to understand, what is the Lord doing? Why is he doing it? Why was the Lord asking him to do these things? There was no doubt in his mind that the Lord had asked him to do certain things. He knew it was the word of the Lord, but the question was, why? He believed that the Lord had a good purpose, that the Lord was able to do difficult things, that the Lord had a purpose, but he couldn't imagine what that purpose must have been. And so we see that Jeremiah is given a task. He prays to the Lord to seek wisdom and direction And the Lord answers abundantly, as Jeremiah was wondering why. Unlike some of the previous chapters, chapter 32 gives to us a reference point. It's in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah. Now, Zedekiah would reign for 11 years before Judah was taken captive Complete captivity took place in 586 B.C. And so this is the last year. Things are getting pretty rough. One more year and, and uh, the whole siege is going to be over and Judah is going to be taken captive completely to Babylon. Things are bleak. And the time is drawing near when the complete fulfillment of all that Jeremiah has prophesied is about to come to pass. And the problem is, King Zedekiah doesn't want to hear it. It's astonishing that he doesn't want to hear it as he sees before his very eyes the fulfillment of everything that 
God through Jeremiah has been prophesying. And yet, he doesn't want to hear it. And so he takes Jeremiah and he imprisons him. It's not quite as bad as being in a prison cell. Jeremiah is held up, we're told here, or shut up in the court of the guard in the palace of the king of Judah. And we know what the goal is, right? It's just simply to silence the messenger. You don't like his message? Then put him away where he's not going to have any influence. You don't like what he's saying about the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah? You don't like what he's saying about the fact that King Zedekiah is now going to be taken captive? Well, just silence the messenger. I don't know about you, but I find the whole thing a bit strange. I mean, after all, Zedekiah was witnessing the reality of the word of the Lord playing out in judgment before his very own eyes, and yet he was in a complete state of denial. This just couldn't be happening, Zedekiah is no doubt thinking. And what Jeremiah says about me, that I'm going to see the king, see Nebuchadnezzar, and speak to him face to face and look in his eyes, eye to eye, well, that's not going to take place. But he couldn't have been more wrong. What really seemed to bother him was that he was going to be taken captive and All of this was going to bring about a a great misery for him. Jeremiah is clear. You're going to meet your enemy, the one who's waging war on you. You are going to surrender to the enemy. And so Zedekiah thinks that, well, I don't like that. Prospect, and so I'm just going to silence the messenger. Strange thing. It wasn't Jeremiah's message. It was God's message. God was speaking through Jeremiah to King Zedekiah. And King Zedekiah foolishly thought that he could just go on ignoring ignoring the word of God simply because he didn't like it. Friends, there are many people like that today. I, I come across them on a fairly regular basis. People who, who may profess to be Christians, they, they profess to know Christ, they profess to believe in the fact that Jesus Christ died for sinners, but but they're not really willing to submit to his word. Oh, I, I agree with it mostly, but, but there are parts that, you know, there's, I heard just the other day someone said to me, well, you know, there's, there's about 10% of it that's just corrupted by man. Just so happens that the 10% was what this person didn't want to surrender. So it is that King Zedekiah, as he hears the word of God, brought to him faithfully 
through the prophet Jeremiah, ignores God's word, doesn't agree with it, and thinks that he can escape what God is saying is going to come. And so he imprisons Jeremiah. But something remarkable happens while Jeremiah is there in prison, as we see in verses 6 through 15. God calls upon Jeremiah to redeem a piece of property that was owned by his uncle in the land of his birth, Anathoth. He was to redeem the land. Presumably, his uncle could no longer afford to keep the land. And according to the law in Leviticus chapter 25, when, when someone endured poverty, there was to be a next of kin who was to buy back the land. We see that in the book of Ruth, don't we? A kinsman redeemer who was to buy back the land. We don't know if Jeremiah was the, the first relative, but we see that it fell to him to buy the land. from Hanamel. And he scrapes together the money. We wonder where the money came from. Where did Jeremiah get the, the resources to be able to purchase the land? But nonetheless, we're not told. He has the resources. He pulls them together, we're told. He, he counts them out. He, he weighs the silver and he purchases the land. Now I can think of nothing more foolish than to buy a piece of property that you know is going to be taken by the enemy and destroyed. But the reason that Jeremiah does this very thing is recorded for us in the last part of verse 8. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Here was Jeremiah willing to sacrifice, no doubt, his resources to redeem the land that belonged to his uncle because this was what the Lord required of him. Quite a difference between Jeremiah and Zedekiah. Zedekiah, who was trying to spare his own life and put Jeremiah away to silence him, and Jeremiah, who was willing to give up his resources to obey the voice of the Lord, reminds me of what we read in Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Jeremiah, locked up there in the palace, obeys the word of the Lord, scrapes together the money, counts it out, purchases at a most foolish time this piece of property because God had asked him and commanded him to do so. He weighed out the money. He purchased it. <clears throat> We're told here that he takes 
an open copy and a sealed copy of the deed. Presumably, the open copy was for common use, and the sealed copy was to present in case there was any question about the authenticity of the deed. But the question really is, why, why the purchase? Why the land? Why now? The Lord tells him that houses and fields and vineyards shall be brought into this land. There's going to be a restoration, but Jeremiah just doesn't seem to understand. And so he goes to the Lord in verse 16 and, and begins to pray. He says, after I had been given the deed of the purchase to Barak, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. He speaks of God's power, God's might, his outstretched arm by which he makes the heavens and the earth. And he recognizes nothing's too difficult for the Lord. After all, he's, he's shown his steadfast love, his, his hesed, his covenant faithfulness to his promises, his loyalty to his people. Oh, Jeremiah says to the Lord, look what great things you've done. You've not only stretched out the heavens and the earth, but you are the God who has brought about a great redemption from Egypt. He acknowledges that God will not let the guilty go unpunished, but he exalts the Lord, the great and the mighty Lord, and he uses the covenant name of the Lord Yahweh, the self-existent, everlasting, and eternal God, who's great in counsel and mighty in deed. And notice verse 19, his eyes are open. He's not only all-powerful, he is also all-knowing. He sees all things. He's a God who's redeemed his people from Egypt, and he has a great understanding of all that is being done. Jeremiah has a marvelous view of God's character and his nature. But there's one thing that's still confusing Jeremiah. What in the world is God doing in giving him this land. What in the world does is, is God mean by the purchase of the property? <laughs> After exalting God's power and his might and his majesty and the great redemption from Egypt, he says, Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. I suspect that Jeremiah, in acknowledging that nothing was too difficult for the Lord, thought that the Lord was going to preserve them from any further siege. 
that God was going to lift the suffering and restore them immediately. And then we see the Lord responding in verses 26 through 44. And he says to Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the eternally existent Lord of the universe. I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. And he asks the question, Is anything too hard for me? Here he is answering Jeremiah's prayer. And he, he acknowledges with a question what we know the answer to and what Jeremiah knew the answer to. There's nothing that's too hard for the Lord. He's the God of all flesh. It's the same question, interestingly enough, that, that God asked when Sarah laughed. Do you remember that? God promised Abraham that he would give him, that he would be the father of a great nation. In his old age, and Sarah, when she heard it, laughed. And the question that the Lord asks, is there anything that's too hard for me? He's asking Jeremiah, why are you confounded? Everything may appear beyond the scope of possibility, but not for God. What is he planning? He's planning great judgment. Notice how many times he talks about the fact that the Israelites have provoked him to anger. Time and time again in our context, he talks about the fact that they've provoked him to wrath. He says that, that they have gone up on the rooftops and they have worshipped Baal. They made offerings there to Baal and drink offerings, verse 29, have been poured out to other gods so as to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel, verse 30, and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. They didn't listen to a thing that God told them to do. And so the Lord is going to bring great judgment. Oh, oh how great is their sin. They have not only brought offerings from the rooftops, but they've also desecrated the house, the temple of the Lord. And they've made high places. And they have offered sacrifices, the sacrifice of their children. In the valley of the son of Hinnom, they've offered them to Moloch. My friends, I wonder as we read this, if it sounds familiar we look at our own nation, we say, oh, but we're more civilized perhaps than they. Yet the slaughter of babies every year, and a nation that sits back and watches worship not to Baal, but to the 
God of peace or the God of prosperity or the God of comfort or the God of convenience. God the judge is going to judge Judah and God the judge will come to judge the world in righteousness. Do not forget that great reality. Look around. What do you see? Oh, how important that we pay heed to Jeremiah. God's judgment is real. And God's judgment is going to be unleashed on us just as it was on Judah. But notice, notice what else God is going to do. Look at verse 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. What have they done? What is wicked and evil in the sight of the Lord? But what is God going to do? He is promising here an everlasting covenant. He says, I will bring them back. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will give them one heart and one way. I will not turn away from doing them good. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. I will rejoice to do good to them. I will rejoice. I will plant them in the land. That's what God is going to do. And friends, these promises are not merely for Israel. They're not merely for the remnant that has descended from Abraham. These promises are to the Israel of God, not the children of flesh, as Paul speaks about in Romans 9, but the children of the promise. What is God going to do? He He will bring about a restoration of the land, but something is going to take place that's far greater. He's going to give one heart, and one way. And what is the way? But through Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And God is going to rejoice in doing good. And the complete fulfillment was not to be seen 70 years after the captivity when they would be restored to the land, but we would be seen and found in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promises that he gives here, he extends to all who are in Christ by faith. And friends, the complete fulfillment of this everlasting covenant is to be found when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in judgment. For those who are in Christ on the day of his return, it will be a day like no other. We have better days yet to come. 
And while things may not appear to be a whole lot different than they were in the times of Jeremiah, as we see the Lord forsaken and his blessings despised and people rebelling against him and worshiping the gods of the age, oh, how we need to be reminded that the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And that if you are in Christ, it is because God has done a marvelous thing. Nothing is too difficult for him. For he sent his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the angel announced to Mary that the one that she would give birth to the Lord Jesus Christ, she, she was told by that angel, for nothing is impossible with God. Friends, the good news is the good news of the gospel. It's ironic, isn't it? In the face of a pandemic, we're doing everything we possibly can to preserve physical life. Our nation's in an uproar, divided over issues of social justice with the intent to preserve life. And all the while, we're a nation that sacrifices to the altar of convenience babies, thousands, millions. Oh, do we understand we understand as a nation that God is the judge of all the earth. That he sees and beholds all that's going on. And that he will come in judgment. We can try like Zedekiah to escape it. We can try to ignore it as most of the world and the nation in which we live does. But in trying to escape it and preserve our own life, we're going to lose it. But when we lose our life for the sake of the gospel, friends, Jesus says we'll save it. And there's only one way to save your life, and that's through faith in Christ. There's only one salvation. There's only one way. It's through Christ. And let me tell you that when God does his work in making one heart and one way, and in doing good, he also puts his fear within us, and we begin to walk in his ways, willing to sacrifice our very lives our ambitions, our, our wants, our desires, they, they melt before a God who has promised to do us good. Why? Because he's at work. And friends, the future is bright for those who belong to Christ by faith. Well, it doesn't mean there's not going to be judgment and trial and tribulation, but it's bright for God has made an everlasting covenant. 
In that great book of Hebrews, which we read from earlier just a little bit later, Hebrews chapter 13, we read in a great benediction this very thing, beginning at verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the everlasting covenant, the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Hope is not too difficult for God was that he gave Abraham an heir. And in making his covenant with Abraham, had him take a sacrifice, and God himself passed through that sacrifice. Quite unusual. For in a covenant ratification, both parties would pass into the middle. But God declared to Abraham that if, if any party failed, that God would take the penalty upon himself. And the God who promised to Abraham to do something that was not too difficult would fulfill his promise to Abraham in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to a people who had forsaken him and walked their own way, who had worshipped the Baals and worshipped false gods and offered their offerings. And God, through his Son, would bring about an everlasting redemption through the blood of his Son, Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't cause your hearts to melt and to walk in his ways, then nothing will. To surrender your life to the one with whom nothing is impossible. For there's nothing that's too hard for him. Let us pray. Gracious Father, how thankful we are that you have established an everlasting covenant through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that by faith we are children of the promise. May we hold fast, O Lord, and may we know that you are holding fast to us. May we walk in your ways to the glory of your name, through Christ our Savior. Amen.